<clears throat> All right, we are in Revelation 19 and 20 today. We're, next week is going to be our last Revelation. Um, but here we come to a climactic point in Revelation. The bowls have been poured out, Babylon has been judged, and a heaven, heavenly scene is being displayed. It's a culmination of prophecies in this long-awaited period of the marriage supper of the Lamb, of King Yeshua taking his throne, of Satan being bound, and the messianic reign of a thousand years beginning. The kingdom that John the Baptist, Jesus, and his disciples were preaching, that the prophets foretold, this kingdom is now here. So if you forgot or you weren't here, um, you can go back and listen to the messages that we paused in the middle of Revelation to do a kingdom series. Um, we did that purposely to better explain because there's just so much around it of trying to understand what the, what the kingdom actually is. Because um, <clears throat> most of our ideas have been based off of heaven-hell issues only and uh, these pictures that we, ha- we have in our mind that conjure up. And so we th- either left the millennial reign uh, and kingdom out altogether um, or if we've left it out for those who didn't get raptured um, or have just never really thought about too much about it. So there's a lot to unpack in these two chapters, so I hope that you have a, you know, a cup of coffee or uh, put your listening ears on and uh, we'll be ready to move quickly. And <clears throat> we're going to take a few deep trails. So let me just pray. Father, I ask only what you want your people to hear that that will be the things, Lord. Lord, I I submit myself to you simply as a vessel and ask that you use my mouth as a mouthpiece for you, Father. Lord, I know that we are all full of mixture, and I'm just asking uh, before you and before your people, Father, to keep me from saying anything that is not of you, and Lord, that the people would have discerning ears that if uh, there are things that are... um, mixture of man that those just would be cast out the father we come before you and and been seeking you this entire time through revelation uh, asking for that spirit of truth to be guiding us in jesus name all right in revelation 19 i'm going to start there with my reading glasses And after these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again, they said, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of a mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. Skip to nine. Then he said to me, Right blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. We skipped verse eight, but we'll come back to that. I want to pause here to talk about this long-awaited marriage supper of the Lamb. So I know we've discussed it before, but let's review again in the ancient 
um, Jewish wedding what, and identifies some of the characters that were in the wedding party. In ancient times, the father, that's representative Father God, would select a bride, that would be the church, uh, for his son, that's Yeshua, Jesus. The bride would be approached with the terms of the covenant. She would have a decision to accept the terms or not. Um, and then if she did, there was a gift given to her. It was a costly gift that would help her, um, help her in her time of waiting. And uh, we see that as the gift of the Holy Spirit. And they sealed their engagement with a cup of wine. By legal terms, they were now in a binding relationship um, and, a, and a contract. And if they were to want to break that, they would have to go get a legal divorce. Although they were not together, they were not living together, or have they consummated a marriage of any sort, but this was the legal betrothal. That's what we understood with Mary and Joseph. Um, that, that was them during that time as well. So... Um, <clears throat> The groom would go away, and he would prepare a place. The bride would not know when he was going to return, so she had to be ready. Her clothing, her oil lamps, and since the groom would come at an hour she did not know, there were friends of the groom that would go before the groom and make loud noise and blow shofars in the street and, and wake up the bride, telling her basically, be ready, be ready, your groom is coming. The groomsmen would get her and lift her up into a chair, like this couch type of thing, which is the same idea. She's in the air. She's flying in the air. And they would carry her to meet the groom. And at this point, they would have this huge wedding celebration. <clears throat> there has been a lot to study and, and focus in on uh, ancient Jewish wedding traditions. The bride, the bridegroom and the father, even the Holy Spirit. But something I have always questioned was... There are other people clearly here at this wedding celebration, at this marriage supper. And whether it's in the parables that Jesus gave of the invited guests or the words here in Revelation that say, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb, I always wonder, who are these people? Like, who's the other company here? These friends of the, of the groom who are accompanying him. So let me take you to the Song of Solomon. In chapter 3, um, verses 6 through 11. Keep in mind that we, what we just uh, talked about and of ancient Jewish weddings and recalling the imagery of wedding parables that Jesus have spoke, has spoke of. It says, who is this coming... Um, hang on, pause one second. Uh, first of all, just so if you guys don't know, the Song of Solomon is it's a book that is um, with intimate allegorical picture of the bride and the bridegroom. It's full of metaphors and rich imagery. So keep all this in mind. Um, verse 6, Who is this coming out of the wilderness, like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the merchant's fragrant powders, behold, it is Solomon's couch, with sixty valiant men around it. Of the valiant of Israel, they all hold swords, being expert in war. Every man has his sword on his thigh, because of fear in the night. Of the wood of Lebanon, Solomon the king made himself a palaquin, 
He made it of pillars of silver, its support of gold, its seat of purple, its interior paved with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go forth, O daughters of Zion, and see King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, the day of the gladness of his heart. Um, I need to pause because I have macaroni that needs to come out of the oven. So <laughs> it's not spiritual, but can you go take care of that and put it in the crock pot for me? <laughs> Thank you. All right. Back to the scripture. I got this one. All right. The phrase um, uh, in verse six, who is this? In Hebrew, this is in the feminine. So this is speaking of the bride. This isn't speaking of Solomon here when it says, who is this coming out of the wilderness? This is speaking of a, of a woman. Who is this woman? Who is this bride coming out of the wilderness? Being lifted and carried in the air to meet the groom. Being lifted and carried in the air to meet the groom. Does that sound like anything? Okay. Right? Are we starting to get this picture in our head? She's being carried and accompanied to the groom with all this fanfare and royalty and respect with 60 valiant men who have swords on them, who are expert of war and are ready to do battle because of the fear of the night. Where do they retrieve her from? They are carrying her from the wilderness. This is notable language to me because several chapters ago in the teaching of the woman, the man-child, and the dragon from chapter 12 in Revelation, um, actually, I think that was a recorded message. I don't know if you guys ever got the opportunity. I had COVID at the time. So, um, but if you haven't had a chance to listen to it, this would make more sense. So go back and listen to that one. But just to give us a little refresher, in Revelation chapter 12, Um, let's see, where do I want to start at? Okay, so this is, uh, there's a great sign in heaven. Here's a woman, she's clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet. And in that sermon we discussed, is this church, is this Israel? And that was the discussion. But nevertheless, um, here's Satan, uh, the dragon. He's, he's wants to devour this man-child. Uh, she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. That's three and a half years. Um, and later on, it talks about how the war broke out in heaven. Satan was cast out. And um, now he's angry. And he's coming after the woman who gave birth to the man-child. And... Um, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. It says and that he was, he was enraged because he knew that he had short time left. Um, now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for times, times, and a half a time. That's three and a half years. <clears throat> All right, so here we see some imagery. That's what it made me think of when I'm seeing this woman that they're taking from the wilderness. And uh, bringing her, they, they've nourished her. All right, so we see her in the wilderness, yet she's being nourished by, if you guys recognize the, the language there, they. It says, they should feed her. Again, they nourished her. So who are the they? 
If you've ever read that and have like, who, who is this feeding the... Like, it doesn't say God is doing it. It says they are. So let me go back to Song of Solomon, the 60 valiant men. Men of warfare. The closest entrusted warriors to the king. Completely devoted to the king and his business. And do you remember a few weeks ago when Iz gave a sermon on the 144,000, the identification of those, and one of the things he brought out was that it's not an actual, it could not be, it may not be an actual number of 144,000, but representative being the men of war, counted as the men of war, these valiant men, um, and how they were counted, and how that number could be a, a representative of, of a picture of a group of people, of God's people, who have been qualified they were sealed. We know from reading in other parts of Revelation that we've already studied out. They, there were cer- certain things about them that marked them as different. They were sealed. They were overcomers. They followed the lamb. They were not defiled. They were called first fruits. So you know what I saw when I read this verse about the 60 valiant men that were presenting this bride to the groom? <clears throat> I saw a multiple of 144,000. I like numbers. So 60 is a multiple of 144,000. It's 2,400. 60 times 2,400 is, is uh, 144,000. 24 broken down is a number representing priestly work and worship and warfare. It's worship and warfare in David's uh, temple era um, when he, would, he had set out what the priests, their, their orders and what they were, how to serve in this temple. Um, it was, <clears throat> and then 12 is also a multiple. We see 12 disciples, 12 apostles, representing perfect governmental order. I also saw Gideon's 300, which is also another multiple of 144,000. So I don't know the depths of which are, that are God's ways, but I do know that he is the creator of science and math. Man didn't come up with that. God did. And I know that he is an ordered God, and he does things in patterns and such that our finite minds can't actually comprehend at all. But what I propose is this, is that this could be another look at the same group of people. All these could be a different pictures of the same thing. Are they the groomsmen? So let's read a few verses. <clears throat> in Matthew 9:15, Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. This is the same verbiage in the other Gospels of Mark and Luke. And then John actually says it too, but John says it just slightly different. He says, he who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hear him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. In John 15, 13 through 15, it says, Greater love has no man, no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends. This is Jesus' words. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from the Father, I have made known to you. And then in 2 Corinthians, here's Paul speaking to the Corinthians, and he says this, For I am jealous 
for you with a godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Paul here is the one doing the presenting. Why didn't he say that for I am jealous for us with a godly jealousy for we, I have betrothed us to one husband that I may present us as a chaste virgin to Christ. See how he's, he's separating it out? There's a separation there. So we've spoken before between the distinctions of how we relate to Jesus in our life. These friends, these valiant men, the overcomers, the 144,000, first fruits, Gideon's army, etc., etc., all have in common the allegiance to the king, the allegiance to the groom, the allegiance to the lamb, or the allegiance to God. They all picture the same thing. It's a full allegiance. So did you notice some familiar and qualifying languages in these verses? In John, he said that he calls us friends if what? If we obey his commandments. And those, it said, come from the Father. Jesus asked in other verses, why do you call me Lord, but you don't do what I say? And he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. So how do we relate? How do you relate in your walk with Jesus? We have taught on this before, but it's always good to reiterate a concept. We see our walk throughout the tabernacle itself. We see our walk even in the titles that we call Jesus. Jesus, Messiah, that's the Savior. We have met him. We have put our faith in him. We recognize him as Jesus, the Son of God, who died and rose and took our penalty of death. We see him at the cross and identify in his death and resurrection through water baptism. We see the glorious picture displayed in the outer courts where the tabernacle furnishings consist of the altar and the wash basin. So many people stay here. They abide in this outer court experience. They are saved, but this is where they stay and they tend to struggle in their walk because they don't know Jesus beyond Savior, Messiah. They often will live a life of their own will, doing their own things, not really submitting to God's kingship. They will call upon Jesus when they are in trouble, which we all should. That never gets old. When they need help. And yet, hopefully, they will grow and walk and spend time in the Lord and his word, and they will develop a prayer life and allow that sanctification process to happen. They'll move from justification out there in the outer court to walking into that holy place. That holy place is, is representative, as we see, an anointing there, of the furnishings in the tabernacle. And what does Christ mean? We see Jesus Christ Lord. What does Christ mean? It means the anointed. So they begin to see the power of God in their lives to break bondages and live in freedom, to truly begin to get purged. They meet and begin to understand the work of the Spirit. Christ means anointed. The Holy Spirit is the anointed life. The gifts of the Spirit are at work. They are convicted of sin and righteousness. And they don't just call on the Messiah for constant saving from their troubles, like I said, which we ought to do, but our lives should go beyond that. In the tabernacle, we see a picture of this in the holy place, and the furnishings that are in there are the menorah, 
filled with oil. Oil represents the anointing of the Holy Spirit. The table of showbread. Jesus is the bread of life. He said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Later he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. We see also the altar of incense, representing worship before the Lord. And although these company of spirit-baptized people may show forth wonderful gifts, they can hear from God, or they've been given dreams or used in healing, there's further yet to go in their walk. If we recall Jesus' words of the ones that were crying out to him, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things in your name? And he said, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, as we've learned, Torahlessness. That word where he says, I never knew you, means I never approved of you. If you go back to the, uh, the language, there's the idea of approval. So we have learned this isn't a heaven and hell issue. This isn't about salvation, but rather this is our second inheritance of our reward, our position in the kingdom. Notice that they called him Lord, but what happened? They didn't obey. So then our walk continues, and we see Jesus as Lord. This place we are supposed to be walking as believers is constantly forward, deeper, moved by the Spirit in obedience to Jesus. Seeing and walking as Jesus, as Lord in our lives, is one of relinquishing our wills, our own wills. We no longer live for ourselves or our selfish desires, even if they're good, even if they're godly. We say, Lord, you are the king of my life. This is the valiant men. These are the qualifying factors that we are seeing in these, how these people, these groups that we see all throughout the word of God are, are qualified, something different. This isn't about salvation. We submit to the king of kings, and this walk will never be complete in this age. The new covenant that was spoke about said that he was going to write his laws on our hearts. And this has begun, but we certainly haven't arrived. This life is an abiding in the secret place of the Almighty. That's where they live. That doesn't mean they don't sin. It just means that is their abiding place. The Holy of Holies, submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. What's in the Holy of Holies? It's the Ark of the Covenant. God's manifest present. And what's inside of the Ark of the Covenant? Some items, but we also know that the the tablets, the Ten Commandments, God's law is in there. So even if we don't have the full picture, we see enough. We see that there's an upward call to live fully for the King of Kings. We see enough to see that there are distinctions made to those who do. And as we've been wading through the doctrines and theologies made, uh, that have made our foundation, I think that we are hopefully uh, beginning to see through these teachings, through Hayusod, that there is a call to obeying God, to obeying his word. This is beyond salvation. This is what the, age of, the next age to come is based off of. So let's go back to verse 8 in Revelation 19. It says, now remember we're talking about the bride. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. 
Doesn't that sound weird? She's wearing these clothes, and what these clothes are, are her righteous acts. There's an outward display that she, he, these people are wearing that shows the righteous acts. That's, a, that's strange wording. It's, it's a strange concept. So their clothes are literally their righteous acts, but what, does, what is a righteous act? Who gets to decide what a righteous act is? You know, is it the word of God or do we decide? It has to be based off the word of God. That word right there is daika ioma, where it says righteous acts. So I want to show you so you can get a, a more clear understanding other places where that word is used. So in Luke 1, 5 through 6, it says, There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Whose parents is this? John the Baptist. John the Baptist. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. Let's play a little quiz. I'll read that last sentence. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. Which word there do you think is the word daika ioma, which is uh, righteous acts? You're right. So there we see that the righteous acts are the commands and ordinances of the Lord. He's defining it for us. In Romans 2.26, it says, Therefore, if the uncircumcision keeps the righteousness of the law, shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? What word do you think there is? That one's pretty easy. Therefore, if the uncircumcision keep the righteousness of the law, shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? It's the righteousness. But I want to read that to you in a way to better help you understand uh, circumcision is what made a Jew a Jew. That was their covenant fighting thing. And so when uh, the, the gospel was being preached, the Gentiles, there was some, um, it got to the point where there was some erroneous teaching and then the disciples came in and corrected it and they had this big meeting about it because they were, some were saying, which was not true, that you have to be circumcised as well as understanding that this Yeshua is the Savior to be saved. So he was addressing these things and letting them know that's not what saves you. So let me read it this way so you understand that there's a... Um, a, a Therefore, if the Gentile keeps the righteousness of the law, keeps the daika uh, ioma, keeps the righteous acts of the law... If a Gentile keeps the righteous acts of the law, shall not his, ungen- his Gentileness be counted for Jewishness? Shall not his not once in a covenant be counted in a covenant? Do you see how that is just a beautiful picture? Okay, so by no means is this an exhaustive study on the word, but I hope to make a point that the righteous acts that are defined in the New Testament are in relation to the law, to the commands and the ordinances of God. In Romans 8, everyone turn there with me because we're going to read a little bit in there. And if you don't have it uh, in a physical form in your Bible, go ahead and pull it up on your phone. 
because I need help. And since we all have different versions, it's okay. We're all going to read it together and and see how that sounds. Okay? (laughs) So starting in verse 1. Ready? Let me know. Is everyone there? Romans 8. Starting, we'll just read verse 1. You guys ready? Yeah. Okay. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. (laughs) Okay. Did you guys see any of your versions leave off that second half of the verse? Right? Some of the versions said, uh, therefore there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. How many Bible-believing Christians have been able to proclaim that? These are one of those verses, those promises that we proclaim. Therefore, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And then we leave off the other half of the verse. The other half of that verse, the reason it's left off in some manuscripts is because it's repeated again exactly verbatim down, I think, in verse uh, 4 or 5. And so they thought that it was a miss, like he accidentally did it. So some versions have it, some versions don't. I like to keep it because it's just a witness to itself. Let's... If you're reading in context, if it's already said, it's already stated, but it really makes it clear. What versions keep it? Huh? What versions keep it? The uh, King James, New King James. I don't know about the NSB. Um, Yep. Uh, Okay, so let me read now. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Um, there is no condemnation for those who are walking according to the Spirit. There's, an, there's more to that. If you're walking according to the Spirit, you will not have condemnation. So if you're walking according to the flesh, what can we come up with? You're going to suffer condemnation. Okay? Well, what does it mean to walk according to the Spirit? Well, thank goodness, it says right here. It says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. I'm going to point out, it did not say make you free from the law. It says makes you free from the law of sin and death. Makes you free from the penalty. Mm -hmm. The death sentence that the law demands is now taken away from us. We are no longer under the penalty of breaking God's law. That does not equal we are not under God's law. Just means we don't have, we're not going to suffer the penalty of death sentence anymore. Um, let's see where, verse 3. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. It was weak through the flesh. That does not mean the law itself was weak. It was weak in the flesh, meaning that the flesh cannot keep the law. He condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus. That's why there needed to be Jesus' flesh, because we can't do it. So now the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled. Verse 4, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh. That word that we were paying attention to, the, I forget how to say it. Let me go back. 
Dyke that ioma. Okay. In verse 4, that word righteous requirement is that same word. So the righteous requirement, the daikoma of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Um, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. Pay attention. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Why? Verse 7. Because the carnal mind is an enmity against God. How come? For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. So then those who are in flesh cannot please God. Let me read that again. Because the carnal mind is against God. Our flesh is against God. How do we know what's flesh and what's spirit? It says so. For it is not subject to the law of God. The law of God is walking according to the spirit. Walking according to our own things or against the law of God is walking fleshly. All right. Walking according to the Spirit is being subject to the law of God that is now being written on our hearts. That was the new covenant. This is kingdom living. Now we can reread Revelation verse with a fuller picture of this fine linen that the bride is wearing. Going back, let me read it again. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Can everyone hold up the word of God for me? Okay. So you instinctively held up your Bibles because you know the Bible, the written word is commonly referred to as the word or the word of God. Right? Keep that in mind. We're going to go ahead and jump to verse 11. I'm going to save verse 10 for next week. Now I saw in heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. And his eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written on him that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. In the beginning, John 1, 1 through 5, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light, of men, uh, light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. That word for word is logos. It's the written word of God, the Torah. Contains his commands and the laws, the writings, and the prophets. He is the word of God. That's his name. This written word of God. All right. Um, And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty. God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and the Lord of lords. 
Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come, gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeds from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Okay, chapter 20, the moment we've all been waiting for. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should not deceive the, na- or he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. I'm sure we've all heard, if you've been a Christian long enough, we're going to rule and reign with Christ, right? That's pretty common language. But do you see any qualifiers that are being laid out in this Revelation series so far? Like (laughs) the ruling and reigning with Christ, there's some qualifying things happening in that. I don't know if you recall, uh, but I have said it before, and it bears saying it again, that not all Christians are going to rule and reign with Christ. We also know that those who are in this kingdom era can be considered there's the greatest in the kingdom and least in the kingdom. And so far we've also learned that your obedience to God's commands, Jesus, is tied to it. Directly linked. Other qualifying or familiar language language were promises made to the overcomers in the opening of Revelation. So just a few verses back, it said that Jesus was going to rule with a rod of iron. Do you remember in Revelation 2.26 when we read the overcomers? It says, And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nation. This can't be a salvation issue because we can't work for our salvation. It says, Keep my works. So this is about our inheritance, our position in the kingdom, our reward. We read about the white garments of the bride that we just now went into big discussion over in verse 8. And in Revelation 3, 5, the overcomer, to the overcomer, it says, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out, of his name, out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. We read about them sitting on thrones, in just a, a few sentences back. And remember, the overcomer's promise in Revelation 3.21 was, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I have also overcome and sat down with my father on his throne. So, now we have this picture. We've read it. Where is Jesus at at this point in time? On earth. Hmm? On earth. He's on earth. 
He's ruling in the millennial kingdom from Jerusalem. He has a perfect government set up, and as we have learned, the nations are going to come to learn the law of God, that the feasts are happening in this kingdom, and even the mention of sacrifices in the millennial temple. Is he in heaven? No. He's not ruling from heaven at this point. He's on earth. So this punches a lot of holes in rapture theory. Because now you have to do something with some key uh, rapture doctrines and verses that are used to support that. So the word of God says, let's reason. Let's reason together here. So why do Christians quote all these promises, all these ruling and reigning, we're going to be kings and priests, without the qualifiers of these verses? But those qualifiers of those verses are left to those people that were left for the, that didn't make the rapture. You see how disconnected those, they take verses, chop them up, and they have to disconnect them. The promises are for those who are raptured, but the qualifying part that made it get those promises are those people that were left over. They didn't make it. Can we see this is an illogical disconnect? All right, here's another problematic verse, and it is probably the most quoted uh, rapture verse. Um, it's 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And now pay attention to this. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. So if the promise is that we are always going to be with him when the seventh trumpet is blowing at this first resurrection, at this catching in the air that we saw from the imagery of the Song of Solomon, and we see that when he comes to rule and reign on earth, to judge, to teach the nations, then where is it that we want to be? With him. With him. I have heard many that think that those who have to endure the tribulation or even here for the mark of the beast and, and such must have been those ones that were left over that put their trust in Yeshua after the fact, after everybody else was raptured away. Yet this verse right here tells us that this rapture, this catching up, this uh, meeting, is a meeting in the air, and at that point, they will always be with him. But we know that Jesus comes back to earth to reign and rule for a thousand years. So this idea of getting caught up and just being in heaven at the rapture, it's disconnected. It doesn't make sense here. God do something with it, at least, is what I'm saying. So that puts a few kinks in that doctrine. If this verse means they are being uh, raptured and taken off to heaven, then how are they going to be with the Lord always? If they quote all of the promises of the overcomer and yet see the overcomer's that are definitely facing overcoming, that they didn't take a mark, that many were martyred, then why are they taking the promises without the qualifications? Let me ask that again. Why are they taking promises without qualifications? It's because it's a classic case of the Western Christian ideology of escapism. You don't accept the righteous requirements of, of, of the Lord. Right. There are righteous requirements. This is a mentality. And what's worse, 
I see, I think is prideful. It's reaching for an authority without any responsibility. And that's a dangerous place to be. Grasping for the authority, especially with God's name on it, and having taken no responsibility. Dangerous. Do we see now what we would be missing out on if we're trying to get raptured away and and take this escapism thing? We're going to be missing out with being with the Lord, with Jesus. We want to be with him in his reign. Do we not? I mean, we'll have the concluding message next week, but it says that the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. That's the first resurrection. (laughs) So I want to end with words from Yeshua, our Messiah who saved us, our Christ who has himself baptized us in fire, anointing us, and our Lord being the King of Kings. At the Passover meal, he was sharing with his disciples in Luke 20, 20, 18. He says, For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom comes. Now we understand, understanding the kingdom isn't speaking about heaven or hell, it's talking about the millennial reign. And in the Passover Seder, there were four cups of wine drank. He drank the first three. But the last cup, he said he wasn't going to drink it again. Why? Not until the kingdom. Because the four cups represent four things that God promised. In Exodus 6 6 and 7, it says, Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondages. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. And then you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who brings you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. You hear that? The four cups, what they represent in a Passover Seder, which I think most of you guys here have been able to experience. I will bring you out, cup one. I will deliver you, cup two. I will redeem you, cup three. He drank all three of those cups. And then he said, I will, this last cup, he's going to take us. That's what it says. That last cup is, I will take you. That's the promise from Exodus. Yeshua, Jesus, will drink this cup with us in the kingdom, he says. When he takes us at the day of the seventh trumpet, when the kingdom is announced and all creation groans for the manifestations of the revealing of the sons of God, when the kingdoms of the world become the kingdoms of God, as declared, when we enter into his perfect governmental and millennial kingdom, where we will be with him always, having overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony, not taking the mark of the beast, Enduring, obeying, clothed in fine linens of daikaioma, the righteous acts according to the law of God. As we receive rewards and we are made kings and priests, we'll sit on thrones and rule nations, hopefully qualifying to be great in the kingdom. Having been a servant to all, as Jesus warned in Matthew 6:27, for the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. As we are moved by the Spirit in searching the scriptures, and as he begins to convict us and open truth to us, rather it be beginning to understand Shabbat or the feasts, to be looking with spiritual eyes. 
He is speaking clearly in these things. So don't let these things become burdensome, stressful. Don't try to duplicate it. What you're trying to do is commemorate it. You're trying to memorialize it and have an understanding as it is a fulfilling in some instances and it's a foreshadowing in others. As we prepare every week for Shabbat, we're to be reminded of of the coming seventh-day millennial age, the rest, that millennial kingdom. As we get prepared to celebrate Passover and remember his death, and he is the Passover lamb, drinking the last cup this Passover, the cup of promise, I will take you. Let's be mindful that there is coming a time that Jesus will celebrate a joyous feast of him taking us and we drink this wine together in the kingdom. Amen? Amen. All right. Father, uh, let your word uh, go deep inside of us, Father. You say that there's those that plant seeds, those that water it, but you're the one that causes the growth. And so we submit ourselves to you as a congregation of people saying, wherever we are at in our walk, whether we understand you only as Jesus the Savior, Christ or Lord, wherever we are at, Father, you keep calling us upward. But put a desire in our heart, O oh Father, to, to, what is this thing? I want this relationship with the living God. Lord, that we would be truly a people that can say Lord and mean it because we obey you. In Jesus' name, we bless this food, we bless this fellowship time. Amen. Amen.